A Focus Summary of Letters 1-4 through four of Frankenstein In a letter from St. Petersburg, sent in December to his sister in London, Robert Walton begins by reassuring her that all is well, despite her fears about his enterprise. There, the cold wind on his cheeks is a foretaste of the adventures that lie ahead. In his imagination, the North Pole is not the seat of frost and desolation— but a land surpassing all others in wonders and beauty, where the sun never sets, where no man has ever tread, and where he might discover a new passage or ascertain the secret of the magnet. That is why he sets out on his journey not with a presentiment of danger, but with the joy of a child. He reminds his sister that it has been his dream from youth to undertake such a voyage. Though his education was neglected, he loved to read, and he spent his early years devouring the accounts of attempted expeditions to the North Pacific Ocean that comprised his uncle's library. For a time, entranced by the effusions of the great poets, he persuaded himself that he might join the ranks of Milton and Shakespeare. He was consoled in his failure by the inheritance of his cousin's fortune, and he began again to dream of a seafaring life. For the last six years, he had been preparing himself for this enterprise, inuring his body to hardship by working as a whale fisher, and studying the mathematics, medicine, and physical science necessary for a naval adventurer. Now he seeks glory, the accomplishment of a great purpose, and though his resolution is firm, his hopes waver. His plan is to hire a ship from Archangel, recruit sailors, and set out in the month of June. If he succeeds, it will be many months before they see each other again. If he fails, he will see her soon or never. In his next letter, dated in March, he writes that he is an Archangel, collecting the sailors for his enterprise. He laments to his sister that he has no friend to participate in his joy when he succeeds, to sustain him when he fails, and to approve or amend his plans. He has some mistrust in his own judgment, because he is self-educated, and has read only his uncle's books of voyages and the works of the English poets. He has magnificent dreams, but they want keeping. He longs for a friend who could regulate his mind. He is sure he will not find such a man on the ocean, and he despairs of finding one among the merchants and seamen of Archangel, though among them there are men of courage and noble feeling, like his lieutenant. He first heard of this man, who is known for both his dauntless courage and his gentle disposition, from a lady who said she owed him the happiness of her life. She had been engaged to marry him, but when he learned that she loved another who was too poor to earn her father's consent to their union, he bestowed his money and property on her lover, and quitted the country so she would be freed from her promise to him. He is noble, but also highly uneducated, and therefore not a candidate for the sort of friendship Walton seeks. He tells his sister not to suppose that because he complains, he is wavering in his resolutions. They are as fixed as fate. He tells her not to worry. He will not, like the ancient mariner, kill the albatross. But this thought prompts a confession. He attributes his enthusiasm for the ocean to the passion of the poets. 
It is they who have inspired his love for and belief in the marvelous. His next letter is sent in July to inform her that he is well advanced on his voyage and undaunted by the floating sheets of ice that indicate the dangers ahead. He assures her he will be prudent, but he feels certain of success, the very stars themselves being witnesses and testimonies of his triumph. In August, he sends a letter that begins with the report of a strange accident. The ship had been closed in by ice and compassed round by thick fog. When the mist cleared, the crew groaned at the sight of endless plains of ice. There, hundreds of miles from land, they saw in the distance a sledge pulled by dogs and carrying a man of seemingly gigantic stature. A few hours later, the ice broke and freed the ship, but they thought it best to stay in place till morning. The next day, Walton awoke to find the crew leaning over one side of the ship, talking to a man in a sledge like the one they had seen, on a fragment of ice that had drifted toward them. The man was fatigued and emaciated. All his dogs but one were dead. His limbs were nearly frozen, and yet he would not agree to board the ship until they informed him where they were bound. Upon learning that they were on a voyage to the North Pole, he consented to come on board. He immediately fainted, but after they wrapped him up in blankets and gave him brandy and soup, he revived. For two days he could not speak, but the wildness in his eyes, the kindness of his countenance, and the apparent weight of his woes captivated Walton. When he recovered, the lieutenant asked why he had come so far in so strange a vehicle, and the stranger answered, to seek one who fled from me. When the lieutenant indicated that they had seen this man, the stranger interrogated him about the route taken by the demon. He then seemed animated with new life, and spent all his time on deck watching for a sign of the other sledge. Walton persuaded him to stay in his cabin, and promised they would notify him if the sledge appeared. Walton tells his sister that the stranger's grief fills him with compassion, and that he has begun to love him like a brother. He is convinced that had this man's spirit not been broken by misery, he would be the friend he had been seeking. A week later, Walton writes to his sister that his affection for the stranger increases every day. He is noble, gentle, wise, cultivated, and eloquent. Though he is steeped in his own grief, he listened attentively to Walton's account of his ambitions. Walton felt encouraged to give utterance to the burning ardor of his soul, and his conviction that one man's life or death were small price to pay for the knowledge he sought. At this, a dark gloom spread over the stranger's face, tears fell from his eyes, a groan burst from his breast, and he declared, have you drunk also of the intoxicating draught? Let me reveal my tale, and you will dash the cup from your lips. Conquering his feelings, the stranger asked Walton to share more about himself. Walton told him the history of his early years, and of his desire to find a friend. The stranger agreed that we all have need of a friend wiser, dearer than ourselves. He said he once had such a friend, but he had lost everything and could not begin anew. 
Walton observed that even broken in spirit as the stranger was, something within him remained untouched, like a celestial spirit within whose circle no grief or folly ventures. Walton wonders over what it is that elevates this man so immeasurably over any other person he ever knew. He thinks it is his clarity of discernment, his power of judgment, his facility of expression, and his voice like music. Walton writes a few days later to say that the stranger has resolved to share his story. He sees that Walton seeks for knowledge, as he did, and he fears the gratification of his wishes may be a serpent to sting him, as his was. He tells Walton to prepare for the marvelous nature of his tale, which, anywhere else, he might believe impossible. Walton says he is eager to hear the narrative, but not if it means the stranger should renew his grief. The stranger thanks him for his sympathy, but says his fate is nearly fulfilled. He waits for only one event, and then he will rest in peace. He has promised to commence his story the next day, and Walton says he will record his words each night that he might read them in some future day. He imagines how strange and harrowing must be the story of the storm that has embraced the gallant vessel on its course and wrecked it thus.